You're listening to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS, part of the Classroom Psychology Network. And now, here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. I'm your host, Cora. Thanks so very much for joining me. You are very welcome here. It's wonderful to see you. I hope that everything is going as well as it could do. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I hope that this morning you have tended to the garden of your mental health in some way. For sure, I have did a little bit of mindfulness this morning. Um, I've got myself a little coffee and I'm, yeah, I get the opportunity to speak to you fine folks. What a wonderful, I can't, I can't think of a better way to spend my morning, frankly. Uh, thanks so very much for jumping on in here. Now, in terms of the garden of our mental health, we have a couple of seeds already planted. Our first episode, we talked about the challenges of uh, experiential avoidance and how embracing with open arms the all of the experiences of this disease, as unpleasant as some of them might be, that embracing and fully accepting where we are can only be a good thing in this disease. And moreover, to think about accepting and then activating. So understanding where we're at, fully accepting it, and then deliberately doing the things that might make us anxious, or at least in spite of feeling anxious, we do the things that are good for us. Whether that be exercise, as we found out last week, a post-traumatic growth exercise is quite important, painful. Whether it be doing the mindfulness that I do every morning and every afternoon uh, for 10 minutes ago, we're going to do an episode on mindfulness for sure. Uh, whether it be you know connecting with and and tending to the relationships that are important to us, whether it be you know sitting in front of the TV with your partner and watching something together uh, under a blanket, whatever it might be that makes you happy, those are the things that we need to be doing, right? Like that's no, it's not rocket science. That <laughs> I just need to do more of those things. That sounds wonderful. Now today's seed that we're going to plant is around optimism. And why? Because, well, optimism, it turns out in the positive psychology literature, optimism is a big player. And we found that indeed in the post-traumatic growth literature, that growing, following something traumatic, like a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and the experience of multiple sclerosis, optimism can be a big factor. And it's not enough to be like, oh, let's just be more optimistic, please. <laughs> like, oh, I'll just be optimistic. It, it, it can't, it can't, it can't force these things. We need some good methods of developing optimism over time. So let's take a look at the literature, see if we can't find what they are. Now, if you're interested in following along at home, once again, we've got a few articles that are worth taking a look at. The first is by Hikarens and Eid, 2021, Inducing Positive Affect and Positive Future Expectations Using the Best Possible Self-Intervention. That's a systematic review and meta-analysis. Carrillo, Rubio, Arpaccio, Molinari, Enrique, Sanchez, Meca, and Banos, Effects of the Best Possible Self-Intervention, a Systematic Review, a Meta-Analysis. Also really, really good. Um, the other, probably the big one that I would recommend is Malouf and Shoot in 2017. Can Psychological Interventions Increase Optimism? A Meta-Analysis. That looks at all the kind of psychological interventions that we've got running and which ones are better for like developing, uh, developing optimism. So no bad thing. 
So those are really good. Yeah, those systematic reviews, do take a look at them if you fancy. I'll put a link if I can in the description. Uh, certainly you'll find the references in the description so you can follow them as you would like uh, and follow along. They've taught us a lot, it turns out, about how to develop optimism. So optimism, Shire and Carver, 1985, they define optimism as a tendency to believe that vivid experiences will lead to good results rather than bad ones. And I got updated in 2010 by Carver, who explained that to be optimistic is to maintain a generally favorable expectation about the future. Now, I can hear you because you are most likely thinking the same thing that I thought when I first read that. And I was like, well, easy for you to say, <laughs> but I've got multiple sclerosis and that's a degenerative disease. Like, uh, I don't know that optimism is very easy to do when you have degenerative disease. Um, and for sure, interestingly, uh, there's a, uh, there's some of the work in this field says that indeed, like, multiple sclerosis is a threat to optimism. That, uh, if you have multiple sclerosis, you have diabetes, it is like a challenge to optimism. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, so I'll be at home being like, a threat to optimism? Didn't you say we shouldn't see it as a threat? Yes, you're absolutely right. Well spotted, thanks so much. Yeah, quite right. Uh, it's a challenge to our optimism. And as a consequence, challenges can be overcome. And indeed, maybe while... It certainly seems to be the case that optimism uh, is like challenged by multiple sclerosis and other kind of chronic diseases. It doesn't mean that we cannot develop that optimism. Uh, and certainly we're going to take a look at how to do that uh, now. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so if you're interested in that study uh, that looked at kind of diabetes and multiple sclerosis and the impact on optimism, uh, Fournier, Deridler, uh, Deridler, sorry, yes, Derrida, uh, Deridler and Batman uh, in 2003, Fournier, Derrida and Ben Singh in 2003, is optimism sensitive to the stresses of chronic disease? It turns out that it absolutely is. So it makes sense. We can feel empathy with ourselves and accept that. Maybe we don't feel all that optimistic and we can feel empathy with ourselves. We're clearly not alone and it's clearly not our fault that we don't feel all that optimistic sometimes. But maybe there are things that we can do to help. Because apart from anything else, optimism is really good for growth. It's really good for psychological functioning. It's, it's really good for kind of positive affect and feeling good of it in the world. But it's also good for uh, like things like pain modulation. So Bia Bento in a, a, a dissertation uh, looked at the conditioned pain modulation response and induced optimism in young adults, found that you know, pain modulation changes with regards to how optimistic the person feels in response to it. And there is a sort of small body of literature looking at the relationship between optimism and pain. Optimism, mindfulness uh, can be really supportive of like, it's, it's not a bad thing to do in the context of chronic pain. Now, I experienced chronic pain for about a year with this disease. I had nerve pain down my right-hand side. Uh, I feel you, those of you out there experiencing pain. I feel you. It is no fun at all. I was up every three nights uh, with pain, and I had a pain management plan. But the thing that made it most difficult to do, the thing that got in the way most, was that moment at the start of feeling some pain where I was sitting there on my couch. I'd taken all the painkillers I could find, you know, I'd taken like aspirin, paracetamol, and 
ibuprofen and I knew it wouldn't help. I knew it wouldn't touch the sides of the nerve pain, but I just felt like I needed to do something. I don't recommend it, right? But I felt like I needed to do something. And I was sat in front of the TV. I would turn on the TV. I would set the timer on my watch because I knew that this wave of pain would stop in about 20 to 30 minutes. So I, but in that moment when I put that timer on, I was sitting there thinking, my goodness, this is never going to end. This is going to be the time that it doesn't stop. I don't know how to manage that. And that thought, that terror, you know, just completely degraded my optimism. And I can see how remaining optimistic in those moments can help. It makes the pain more containable. So for sure, like something will help, something will work, something will. And I, you know, in terms of sort of reasons for optimism, after a year of that experience, one day it stopped and it never came back. And it's been years. So it can change, it can get better. And this is reason for optimism, even in the most challenging of circumstances. Now, how do we develop our optimism? So it turns out in the positive psychology literature, there is a good intervention out there, but it seems pretty beefy. It comes with some caveats. So King, 2001, uh, describes this intervention known as the best possible self-intervention as follows. Think about your life in the future. Imagine that everything has gone as well as it possibly could. You have worked hard and succeeded at accomplishing all of your life goals. Think of this as the realization of all of your life dreams. Now write about what you imagined for 20 minutes a day. So in the best possible self-intervention, it's a 20 minute writing task per day. So it's not a small writing task. And um, but it seems like it does. I mean, in these two big meta-analyses, Hikarens and Eid, Carrillo, Rubio, Arpaccio and, and colleagues, those two different meta-analyses, uh, they seem to find slightly convicting results, but both find that uh, that the best possible self-intervention does induce uh, optimism in people. We'll come to the challenges in a moment. The first thing we need to do, though, is to find something more manageable, right? Like an iteration of the best positive self-intervention that doesn't take 20 minutes a day to do would be great. Because if we're doing mindfulness and exercise, I don't know if we're going to have time to do anything else. So let's, let's find something better. So in Peters and colleagues, 2013, best possible self-intervention uh, iteration they asked participants to do the following, and it worked, by the way. This was in, uh, I think it's in Spain, Terapia Psicologia. Um, I, I, that's a bit of a guess. Uh, but they basically found that it was effective, this iteration of best possible self. They said to participants, they asked them to write about their best possible self in the future. They said, in order to help you identify your core values, we first ask you to think about how you want to be remembered at the end of your life by your loved ones. We'd like you to think about three different domains to guide your imagery. Personal domain, a relational domain, and a professional domain. And they gave their participants five minutes to write about their best possible self in each of those three domains in turn. So for 15 minutes, they're writing about their best possible self. And then at the conclusion of the writing phase, they asked participants, they asked these folks to extract the two most important qualities for each domain and formulate them as statements of future achievement. So let's say that 
when they were writing about their personal domain, they wrote about how, you know, I for sure MS created these kind of barriers to my life, but I worked really hard and I overcame them and I was able to run a marathon or something, right? Then they asked them to take that, if that's an important quality that they find, and turn it into a statement of future achievement. In the future, I will overcome the barriers of this disease and I will run a marathon. And then they asked them to perform a five-minute imagery exercise with one of the statements of their choice. And they repeated that imagery exercise every day at home for just five minutes, choosing a different statement each day. So the writing task was at the start of the week, and then each day throughout the week was just imagery tasks. Now, that's pretty amazing. I think that's pretty great. That is much more doable, and they found that it was effective at inducing optimism. But here's the caveat. It turns out that the reason why these meta-analyses were finding slightly conflicting results, I think, kind of uh, is is sort of elucidated by Enrique uh, and colleagues in 2017, who took a look at the best possible self-intervention and conducted a randomized controlled trial. So a really high quality piece of work. And they found two problems. The first is that the effects of the intervention while they work does induce optimism in people. The effects don't last beyond the duration of the engagement with the activity. So while you're doing it each week, it's great. You feel a bit more optimistic. And actually, got to say, the effect sizes here are not small. So it really does work at helping you to feel more optimistic about the future. It's a good intervention. But when you stop, it doesn't last beyond the duration of the intervention. So when you, you know, on the week that you decide, okay, this is the week that we stop the intervention, the next week you may not feel as optimistic. So that's not ideal. And you might be like, but wait, surely we can keep going with the intervention. Let's do it every week and just keep going. That might work. I don't think that has been tested longitudinally. But Enrique and colleagues highlight a particular pickle with that idea. And that is the feature of like the phenomenon of hedonic adaptation. Now, hedonic adaptation is basically how longer term kind of when you engage in a positive psychology intervention, right? You do something new, it's new, it's novel, you feel really good about it. And then over time you adapt to the hedonism of the intervention and it stops being as effective over the long term. So it's possible that doing this in the long term might help optimism, but it's also possible that it might not because you might become sort of adapted to it. You just get very used to it, becomes a chore, you stop enjoying it and it stops being all that helpful. So it seems that this intervention is a really good idea. It's certainly something that we can consider, but maybe it's something I need to reserve for when I'm having a relapse or when things are really bad. If I'm feeling really pessimistic about the future, something terrible has happened, then this best possible self-intervention is for sure something I'm going to do to make myself feel more optimism, to get myself through a really difficult patch. But it's not something I'm going to add to the garden of my mental health on the whole. It's not something I'm going to do on the reg. All right. Um, so, uh, so there. Uh, and you might be like, oh, damn, so we can't develop optimism. <gasps> but wait, I think I may have found something. So interestingly, right, in the positive psychology literature, we talk about resilience. We talk about post-traumatic stress, for example. We find that most people, even when experiencing quite a lot of of stress in their lives, even when they're experiencing something traumatic, 
Most people don't develop post-traumatic stress, right? We talked about this last time. Most people are resilient. And we find, you know, in multiple sclerosis, a lot of people grow, potentially, might, it might be sort of very few, uh, sort of fertile ground for post-traumatic growth. You might be able to grow from it. And so given that most people are resilient, some of what we can do in, post, in positive psychology is to identify what can get in the way of people's resilience and remove those barriers. Now, in optimism, there's a sort of view, potentially, Malinowski and Lim, 2015, they talked about mindfulness at work, positive affect, hope, optimism. And they found, interestingly, that the ability to step back from automatic habitual reactions to distress turns out to be a mindfulness facet that is most central for predicting well-being. Mindfulness exerts its positive effect by increasing positive affect, hope, and optimism. It's possible that, you know, given that most people are optimistic and maybe optimism is a, like, generally speaking, people are pretty optimistic in the world. And given the research around multiple sclerosis providing a barrier to optimism, it might be that there are automatic habitual reactions to MS and the experience of it that are the thing that impede optimism. So instead of trying to artificially lift optimism up from the ground, like trying to pick it up and lift it, instead we just work out what's holding it down and try to lift that. And great news, mindfulness seems to be a thing that might work. Now, it's a small and quite recent body of literature that looks at the connection between mindfulness and optimism, but it looks like it might support optimism, particularly in people with low dispositional optimism. Now, so optimism comes in two flavors, trait optimism or dispositional optimism and state optimism or moment-to-moment -moment optimism, right? So your moment-to-moment -moment optimism is how you feel optimistically right now. Dispositional optimism is how you feel optimistically on the whole, generally speaking, over time. And while the best possible self-intervention raises trait at like state optimism, that moment-to-moment -moment optimism, it doesn't seem to do that to dispositional optimism in the same way, as far as I can see. I'm open to being wrong on this. If that works on dispositional optimism, I'm in. But I don't think it does because it doesn't seem to have those longer term effects. But mindfulness, Sweeney and Howell, 2017, they did a really interesting uh, piece of work where they looked at, I think it was law students waiting to see if they passed the bar exam. And they uh, asked some of them to practice mindfulness. They did a, a, an experimental design study asking people to practice mindfulness and other people to not practice mindfulness in those in the in the moment that they're waiting they looked at how people coped and and managed the stress of waiting and they found that people who were low in dispositional optimism generally benefited most from the mindfulness in improving their optimism and helping them to manage that difficult waiting period better so actually what we find is maybe mindfulness might be the key here we might be able to use mindfulness to interfere with those automatic negative thoughts about the disease and the potential future with it. And that might lift the barriers to optimism that we might tend to experience. So mindfulness then. We are going to have to take a look at mindfulness in more detail. How does mindfulness work? 
What do we need to do to implement it? What's the best form of it when you have multiple sclerosis? And what kind of benefits can we expect? Because I guarantee there's going to be some more benefits. There's a wealth of literature on mindfulness in the positive psychology literature. I bet we're going to find some amazing things that we can do with mindfulness if we just plant the seeds of mindfulness and optimism as a consequence and then watch them grow over time. Next time, mindfulness. We take a look and see if we can work out what in the world we can do to grow in the context of this disease. Thank you so very, very much for joining me. This has been Sciencing the Shit Out of MS. It's wonderful to see you guys so much. Look forward to seeing you again next time.